Hello and welcome to the Gifted Podcast. I am your host Neeraj Mulani and in the Gifted Podcast I speak with elite athletes as we try to challenge the misconception that athletes are just some people who are talented or gifted with special abilities at birth. Every week I am joined by an elite athlete as we try to break down what it truly takes and means to be an athlete. If you are an aspiring athlete or just a casual sports fan, you will definitely enjoy this podcast as I get candid with athletes about their journey, their achievements, moments of heartbreak and most importantly, moments of hard work and perseverance. In today's episode, I have with me three-time Olympian, World Cup bronze medalist, ex-world number 7 in slalom skiing, Anna Yelusic. Anna started skiing when she was just 2 years old and competed at her first ever Olympics at the age of just 15, becoming one of the youngest athletes at the 2002 Winter Olympics. In our conversation, we dive deeper into her career and try to uncover the factors behind her longevity and consistency at the top level. We also discuss how after having made it to 3 Olympics by the age of just 24, she was forced to retire because of asthma related troubles. So, let's jump right in. Welcome Anna to the Gifted Podcast. We really excited to have you today and learn about your journey to getting to not one not two but three Olympics. How are you doing? Well, uh, very happy to be here and thank you for the warm welcome. Uh yeah, you know, uh my uh, 13-year-old self or even my 14-year-old self would never have believed that uh, one day I'd be counting my Olympics uh, up to 3, so very proud of that. Uh, it's a real pleasure and we're really keen to understand the reasons and factors behind that consistency and longevity so let's start right at the beginning i often like to ask what made the athlete get into their sport but knowing that you started skiing at the age of 2 maybe this is a question for your parents and what made them get you into skiing um, and i'm sure they truly believe in the say, saying of ski before you walk Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, it's it's funny uh, because obviously I've been telling the story so many times yet I have zero recollection of the story itself. Um I was I had just turned 2 uh, years old. I was 2 uh, years and 2 months old to be precise and my family went on their annual uh, ski vacation and uh, supposedly my you know, my parents went skiing and I was left with the grandma and grandma was bored so she put me on a pair of skis. anticipating the usual uh, you know toddler complains and cries and I'm cold and I don't want to do this um yet supposedly again as the story goes and we will never know the truth on that you know how probably if I turned out to be a horrible skier people would tell you oh my god she hated it from the moment she stepped on skis but um they say that uh, I really enjoyed it and I really didn't want to get off skis and uh, one thing led to another and somehow I ended up becoming a skier <laughs> right and having started so early into the sport what would you say was your motivation to keep going at it once you know you you could make a choice of going into other sports or doing other things apart from skiing what would you say at say at the age of 6 7 8 where your intrinsic or extrinsic motivation to keep going through the sport and learning how how it comes you know what the uh The funny thing is that what keeps you going and it's what keeps you going at 5 at 10 at uh, 25 it doesn't really change much. 
it's just this feeling of being really good at something at being competitive and especially in young children when uh, you know at the ages of let's say between five and ten uh, girls tend to be a bit more even developed than boys so I was better than the boys I was faster than the boys I could compete with them in anything we were doing I could run faster I could ski faster and I was getting a kick out of that so uh, you know the consideration of going into something new where I might not have been as competitive at some point just stopped being an option and who would you say first discovered your talent for it it's funny because i don't i mean talent is important right and without a certain dose of talent anyone could become uh, amazing at the sport they do but at the same time i think there's more ingredients that need to match in order for that you know traditionally conceived talent to come through. Um, definitely my, my stepdad and coach was uh, really into skiing. He loved the mountains, he loved the snow, and he loved uh, dragging me around with him on, on different slopes. And I think what he saw in me was, you know, a level of maybe persistence and a level of enjoyment of the sport that maybe my peers did not have to the same extent. Right. And... I had read across some of your interviews where you had stated that you always looked up to Janika Kostelic for inspiration and considering that she was a legend of the sport and she had six Olympic medals to her name and I'm sure it helped that she was a fellow Croat as well. How important is it to have a sports idol at a young age, especially for you, you know, considering that these idols could possibly guide the way into the sport and follow into their footsteps oh i mean it's it's crucial in a way it's um it just having someone to aspire to and someone that you can kind of daydream about what you could be doing i was lucky enough to obviously yanitz and i are five years apart which gave us just enough age gap for me to see her career develop in the way that it's been developing but also made us then down the line close enough to be able to share some, some insights. And, you know, for me, one of the most maybe memorable moments of my career is years into already being a World Cup athlete and being uh, quite strong, standing on an inspection, which is kind of checking out the course before the race next to Yanitsa, who with her level of experience and knowledge was pointing me out into, you know, some details. And that's something that if you don't have that figure, obviously you're missing out too. But Coming back to your question in terms of early age, you know, I grew up with posters of uh, Alberto Tomba and Deborah Compagnoni on my walls. And while some people had music bands, I had athletes. Right. So you, you always had somebody to look up to and knew the steps that you need to take to reach that level. I mean, the reality is at that stage is just a dream, right? Like at that stage, it's uh, you know, buying a magazine with posters and it's me and it's another couple million kids doing exactly the same. I think it's having someone that then supports that kind of poster made dream into kind of what are the steps to make it a reality that makes a difference. Because we all can, we all can draw, can dream of being, you know, the best singer out there and uh, filling a stadium with uh, thousands of people. Uh, the question is, if you've never taken a, a voice class, if you've never st stood in front of a microphone, chances are you're never going to get there. So it's the same in sport. You need you need the dream, but you also need someone who bring breaks that dream into pieces and makes it like the reality of the everyday grind. 
right and we usually see athletes winning a junior championship as part of their early success but you can actually count competing at the olympics at the age of 15 as one of your early successes even before you medaled at a junior championship what was it like getting to the 2002 winter olympics at such a young age and being the youngest at the olympics altogether you know it's 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 funny because the the word that comes to mind when i think of that experience is overwhelmed and i think kind of in a way while it gave me so much it was an incredible opportunity and i will forever cherish that it was also in some weird way too much too soon too big um i literally went from you know watching certain athletes on tv to all of a sudden competing them and actually beating some of them and that there was no transitional period of adjusting to the idea of becoming a professional athlete i went from you know a regular girl with a passion for skiing who was good at what she did to an olympian and there was nothing in between <laughs> right and you being the youngest athlete at those olympics brings up an interesting question in my mind um, a dilemma that is much discussed by athletes and parent parents world over one of the early specialization in the sport versus letting the child play multiple sports and allowing them to build a more rounded skill set and then choosing a sport at 15 or 16 what what do you think are your thoughts on this it's a, it's you know it's a very difficult question and i i i find myself questioning it now i i have a young daughter i have a 2 year old that i'm very eager to uh put on a pair of skis not obviously with the goal of making her an olympian at 15 but just to share something that's been so important for me um in a way like i don't think there's right or wrong i think there's only following your child i think you know there is something to be said for certain sports they don't give you the luxury of early uh, differentiation if you want to become a gymnast if you want to become an ice skater and partially if you want to become a skier as well the trajectory it starts at a very early age and your peak is at a relatively early age so there's no time once you get into that kind of rhythm there's no time to explore other ventures now the question that you always i guess you have to ask yourself when you have a child who's interested in multiple um element how much is too much and how how do we differentiate at the level that still allows you to then refocus on something or is the differentiation of sports a way of escaping not being good enough at any of them and there's no answer about that right like you have athletes who are extremely talented on multiple things in their life yet they manage to then kind of narrow that down and and excel at their sport but for a vast majority of athletes the focus on one thing is so deep and it's so kind of relentless that they never even considered doing something else so i think you look at the child more at the, at you know what the statistics say right and coming to the olympics so you're at the olympics at 15 and you mentioned that you felt overwhelmed there what sort of goals did you set for yourself getting into those olympics and how do you think you fared against those especially considering that this is your first olympics at a tender age of 15 and you competing with and against some of the idols that's that's interesting you know because i think now that the years have passed and i had time to to think of it there's actually more create a story around it but to be fair there was no time to think i i be kind of uh, eligible to compete at the scene 
um, in October. I was told that there was a chance of me qualifying for Olympic Games in November uh, and with the qualification deadline in December. Horrible season. There was no snow. There was no races. Therefore, um, we asked for an extension from the Olympic Committee in order to allow me to make the, the national quota. And then in January, I qualified and in February, I was at the Games. So from my 15-year-old perspective, things were happening so fast that I don't think I ever kind of stopped and was like, oh my God, I'm going to the Olympic Games. It was just the next goal of what I wanted to do. Even though then I think the bigger realization of what had happened and kind of what the importance of achieving something like that only came to me once I returned from Salt Lake City because I somehow went from, you know, an anonymous 15-year-old who was going to high school and trying to balance sport and education to someone that, especially, you know, Croatia being a relatively small country, all of a sudden, everyone knew my name, everyone was recognizing me. And it was like, oh my God, like, I guess I've done well. <laughs> and right after the Olympics, you you won a silver in junior world championships in 2003 and a bronze in the same competition in 2005. So that's pretty solid preparation going into the 2006 Olympics. How were how are you feeling leading up to the 2006 Olympics? And could you walk me through what goals that you set for yourself, considering that you already had the experience of 2002 behind you and you were going to lean on that experience? Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting, right? I, I, I tend to say that I've done things the uh, wrong way around, right? Normally, you start with your uh, lower level competitions, and then you make your way through the Europa Cup circuit, uh, potentially to World Juniors, uh, World Cup, and Olympics. I've done, um, I went to the Olympics, then I went to uh, World Cup where I scored points, then I went to the junior championships and then I kind of went, went beyond that. Um, so, you know, I think what I realized is that there was no turning back, right? Like you don't go to the Olympics, you don't finish among the top 30 in the world at the Olympics and then you scale down and say, oh, now I'm going to do the proper steps of how this should have been done. So, you know, for me, pretty much my career took off really fast, really quickly. It took maybe a season or two uh, to find my place. And very quickly, I was among the top 15 uh, best uh, slalom skiers in the world, earned my spot in the top seven for, for a while. And it's funny because I kind of skipped this whole junior circuit going to the, to the you know, ju junior once was almost, and it's interesting when I look at the photos from, um, from those medals, if you look at the podium, all of the girls that are on the podium of that junior event are girls that were already consistently scoring among the top 10 in the senior category, um, which is very odd, but it seemed we were just kind of a precocious generation, I would say, that uh, was given the opportunity, took the opportunity, and then were trying to balance this, you know, childhood dream versus professional sport that we got thrown in. And we do need to take into account that this is still very early in your career that you are seeing this success and getting to the Olympics, winning silver and bronze at the junior world championships. What do you think was that doing for the confidence of young Anna and what kind of expectations were you setting for yourself? And more importantly, what kind of expectations were being put on you from external forces, considering that you, you were now being recognized in, in, in the entire country? 
it's interesting right because in a way like i skipped the development phase and i think it did come um to bite me long term because you know i think a lot of what i did was accomplished on sheer you know power of will and energy and just hunger for results um what i didn't have time to do and and i don't want to i'm not going to call it the regret because you know i'm very proud of how my career developed but something that should things have played differently probably would i would have done differently is i had no time to lay down kind of those bases and to and to work on maybe some more let's say adjusting my technical skills from a, a child because i was a child when i entered to something that was fitting for the senior level just because i was in it you're racing every weekend you're training every week and all of a sudden you're like don't change a good thing don't change a good keep doing what you're doing but in a weird way that's also not necessarily sustainable over a 10 or 15 year career so i think my dreams and the difference in what happened with those first olympics is that my dreams went very quickly from a lot of what ifs and you know one day if one day i could i would to you're racing tomorrow and your goal is to be among the you know top few racers in the world um and there was no time to actually do the leg work to get there as a natural consequences of the work it just kind of fell on my head a little bit and having that experience and learning from your first olympics how were you going into the second olympics and what sort of goals did you set for yourself I mean, you know, definitely I was coming to um to Torino with a very different mindset than uh, Salt Lake. I had 4 years of uh high level experience behind me. I was already uh, among uh, I think I was in top 15 of the world at the time. I knew I knew there was room for me among the best uh, skiers in the world. Um at the same time, it's the Olympics are such a funny thing and especially in alpine skiing. It's four years of work uh four years of preparation for literally two minutes of your life and there's so many things that can go wrong and you're dependent we're obviously an outdoor sport there's the weather there's the you know there's a course set there's so many there's your health and how it plays out um so in the end i think you know i i definitely had expectations if i look back to I was 23rd um in my first olympics my goal was uh you know a top 10 to top 15 uh in my second I I landed exactly on the you know on the on the on the far end cusp of that I I finished 15 I do remember feeling there because you know only I would have done this or that maybe I would have done but now it's not 20 years later but we're almost there um the one thing that i think i i very often remind myself that the olympics are about medalists right it's about medals or it's about experience and i was lucky enough to do the experience three times yeah and right after the the second olympics 2007 and 8 is when you truly saw your peak as an athlete you were the runner up in the world cup slalom race in croatia which was your home country and you reached world rank number 7 you know, in that discipline and you had another medal in world cup getting a bronze in 2008 would you say the speak came a little a year a little too late um, you could have done that with that um, going into the olympics or are you 
I think like you mentioned, everything comes as when it is supposed to and you take it in your stride and go with it. You know, both in a way, like I think my life and my career would have been different if I would have medaled at the Olympics, just because the Olympic the Olympics has a weight that goes kind of beyond your sport, beyond your country, beyond kind of your performance on that day. Um, on the other hand, um, earning my first podium a year later in, uh, in Zagreb uh, in front of, I don't want to say, 30,000 people who were literally screaming my name from the top of their lungs in a year that was extremely difficult for my sport, especially in Croatia, because Janica Kostelic, you know, kind of the um, the star of the sport had just announced her retirement. And there was this constant feeling of like, oh, you know, there's nothing now to watch and, and no one's going to be able to bring that level of enthusiasm to the sport and to cross the finish line and kind of give hope was something that was probably more intense than if I would have won that medal a year earlier. So, you know, if I could go back and win both, that would be amazing. But I think in terms of kind of the emotional impact, Zagreb was probably more valuable in terms of most likely kind of financial and status, uh, having peaked a year earlier would have been better. (laughs) Right. And all these successes, in fact, allowed you to, you know, qualify for your third Olympics as well. And getting to one Olympics in itself is a big, big achievement that many people, including myself, can only dream of. But you got to three Olympics. And what would you say is the single biggest factor behind the consistency and longevity of your career? I mean, I think it's hard work, to be fair. You know, we can talk about talent. We can talk about... uh, um, you know, having the right setup, we can talk about all of those things. In the end, for me, success, especially at that level, um, well, there's two elements to it. I think it's hard work um, tied to persistence and tried to, you know, just grit and everything that you want to tie into that. And then there's a bit of luck because in the end, you know, you need to be, you can do everything right and you can still, you know, you can get injured, you can do a wrong turn you can you can miss something and and that's something that you can control up to a certain extent but at the same time there there's nuances of every sport that are out of your hands and I think you know going into my third games I was already you know I was very well versed in in the world cup world I was um, a name you know I had made a kind of a name for myself um, in it and I think in a way, like out of all three Olympics, maybe the last one was the most disappointing, just in the sense that there I really knew it was kind of my moment to um, to shine. If I if there was ever a time to show what I could do, um, and talking about luck, right? Like I was I was a very technical skier. I've always loved um, steep, icy. The more difficult it is, the more I can do. I was um, I was physically relatively smaller than uh, athletes uh, that I was competing with, which uh, benefited me in highly technical situation. And obviously the morning of the Olympics in, uh, in Vancouver, I wake up and you know, you're, you haven't slept really well, you know, that there's a big day ahead. And I, I, I remember as if it was yesterday, just taking, you know, opening the curtains off my room, looking out and just seeing complete whiteout. There's fog everywhere. The weather is horrible. And I was just like, oh my God, 
this is not happening. This is not happening. Um, next information I get from the coaches is the start of the race has been lowered, taking out the most technical part of the competition and the steep and the one where, you know, with my skill set, I could have made most of the difference. And not to say that I knew that my chances were over there, but things were definitely not working in my favor. And, and in a way, I want this to sound as, as an excuse because, you know, I'm not the only one that, that, uh, that, that has preferences in terms of what's happening on the, on the course. But at some point, you're just kind of like, really? Four years of work all to come down to, you know, a jury decision that is completely legitimate. There's nothing wrong with it. And I'm sure for every girl that was in my position being like, why did you take out that steep section that I love so much? There was another girl who was going, saying like, oh, I'm so happy they took that part out because I've, that's, you know, that's not my strength. And now I can focus on the parts that I, I love. So coming out of my third games as a 12th place, even though it's my best placement, um, was definitely not where I was hoping to finish. And as an athlete and Olympian, how do you shake this external variable of going into the actual race? considering that it is going to bear so much importance on the actual result, but how do you try to, you know, not focus on that and actually focus on, on your race? And, and it's also important to focus there because you could still give this a shot and win, but what sort of mindset switch needs to happen in, in this crucial moment? But, you know, it's it's a bit of both. You shake it off and you don't shake it off. You shake it off just because the pure nature of elite sport is that a lot of it is automated. A lot of it, you know, you reach a level of kind of almost self-sufficiency, if you want to call it that. Uh, the moment you leave the start gate, it's almost as if your brain goes on autopilot. And if you're not there, you know that you're not in your flow and you're not having, you know, if you're overthinking it, you're not where you should be. Um, but at the same time, you know, there is a reality of um, a girl like me competing against girls that are uh, 15, 20 kilos uh, heavier than I am on a flat surface, uh, banging against, you know, these plastic poles that are creating some sort of resistance. And, and you just know that in order for me to succeed in the circumstances that are put in front of me, my, you know, if if 110 is what is needed for a top five or for a, or for a medal on a, on a good day, here we're looking at 130, 140% to make this, this dream a reality. Yeah, and you talk about the flow state and I understand that, you know, it's a state where you're almost like Zen-like and letting the body do its work without the mind really interfering with what it needs to do. And, Oftentimes, it can be disturbed by an external factor. How do you, you know, try to take back control in, in that situation? And how does one do that? It's interesting, though, because like, I find that kind of when you're in the flow, you don't really know you're in the flow. And I remember, I remember looking back at the 2007 season and I started it, um, I think I started it in uh, Finland with the fourth place, if I remember correctly. And I remember skiing and just thinking that things were slow and not, not being convinced that 
this was working and then crossing the finish line and lifting my head and being like, okay, you know, if with this feeling, this is the result, something good seems to be happening. And I think that's kind of the magic of the flow that you almost, when you're in it, you don't know you're in it because the processes that you're dealing and you're, you're both mentally and, and physically are so fluid and so automated that I, I kind of describe it as it feels like things are slowing down and you have time to anticipate your next move. Whether the opposite, when you're completely out of your rhythm and out of your flow, you will have a race, you will cross the, cross the finish line and you'll be like, this was amazing, I was so fast because things are happening so fast and you're kind of reactive to them uh, by, by pure kind of reactivity because they're there and you have no choice. But then you cross the finish line and you realize that your time is actually very slow because you're not in control. You're not driving the flow. It's you're being kind of hit by all kinds of external factors that you're trying to defend yourself uh, from. And that's why it's so delicate. And that's why it's so hard to find it, right? Because it's not something that clicks and you can kind of stand at the top and be like, oh, now I'm in a flow. Um, it's something that tends to happen. And I think that's maybe what happens with years of practice. You can somewhat force your mind into that place but at least you know in in my experience it's not a hundred percent uh foul proof uh there's not a, a routine that you can do saying like okay it's gonna work every time yeah and I, i've tried reading up on this and a lot of the athletes actually try and talk about a sequence of activities that they try to do to get into into a state of flow would you say you have any sequence of activities or any other superstitions, if you can call them that, uh, that you try to do to get yourself into that zone? Oh, a hundred percent. And I, you know, I haven't met many athletes that don't. Um, and I think the way I explain it is you're trying to control everything you can control because there's elements of your performance that you have no control over. So if I control everything that I have the possibility of making a decision on, then hopefully I can carry that sequence onto the field of play as well. So, you know, I mean, I was um, from what you wear under your racing suit and in which order you put your socks on uh, to what is the little ritual you do with your coach before being sent off. And, uh, you know, my, my coach, we used to always, you know, you warm up, you're ready to go, you, you do your little fist bump. And then I would always get the kiss on my helmet. And it was kind of almost, you know, oh my God, like I cannot leave the start gate if this is not happening, which is completely ridiculous. You know, I trained 250 days to be able to be ready for that, yet that's going to change everything. But I think there's something soothing about going through these motions that also allows to declutter your brain and allows your brain to then kind of go into this, what we talked about earlier, this semi-autopilot mode where your body knows what to do, your brain knows how to react, and you're there just to give it kind of those little inputs of guidance to adjust the tra trajectory if you want. Yeah. And shortly after your third Olympics, you were forced into retirement at the age of 24 uh, because of asthma-related issues. What was going through your mind at that time, especially considering that you were you had potentially some more fruitful years left in you to achieve more success as an athlete? Yeah. 
you know, the goal uh, was always to go to a fourth uh, Olympics. I, I had the age, I had the, the capabilities of doing so. But I think what happened is um, it's, it's funny because people think of sports, my sport especially being a very short amount of time that you spend actually competing. Um, but the mental toll that a sport like that takes, you don't practice a sport, you kind of live a sport. Um, the amount of sleep you get, what time you go to bed, um, what do you eat, who are the people you surround yourself with, who, what are the events, you know, like family events and stuff that you miss or decide to participate in, and how does that impact your training and stuff. So it's so many factors that long term actually make it just like a very exhausting um, thing. And, you know, many people are married to their careers, right? And sport is probably one of those where you were so in it that it's, it's hard to define it even as a career. It's, it's a lifestyle. Um, so when I was diagnosed with asthma at about the age of 15, you know, I was a 15-year-old teenager who had just come back from her first Olympics. And when they told me I was asthmatic, I was just like, ah, you guys have no idea. You know, I'll, I'll be fine. I've been fine all along, so I'll be fine. Um, asthma being a psychosomatic uh, illness as well, there's actually a lot you can do to control it, especially in my case, obviously, you know, there's people who are struggling with allergies and, 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 and more severe versions of it, but mine was definitely triggered by stress, was definitely triggered by, you know, cold air and high intensity uh, training. But at 15, I was just like, I was overriding that. I was pretty much overriding my body's response by telling it like, you know, you stay quiet. I, I got stuff to do. 10 years later, I think just this constant pushing back on certain things and this constant like taking control of it and trying to not let it dominate my life, like slowly started creeping in. And I, I found myself, you know, st standing at the start gate, calculating and in elite sports, you can't be doing that. You know, I was like, oh, if I, if I go slightly, slightly less hard, will I get less sick at the bottom or what, will it take me less to recover because the next race is more important than this race? So how do I find that right balance? And after, you know, a season where my, my body and my brain kept kind of fighting over what was the right approach, I just reached a point where I realized like, you know, you can't do elite sports at anything below a hundred plus percent. And my brain just had kind of a, a block saying, you know, watch out for your body. You've abused it for so long. You know, it's time to, it's time to, to take it into account and, and meet some of its needs. So yeah, it, for as much as I, you know, hoped to keep going at some point, I think it's only, it's only fair to put things on a plate and be like, I've had a great time. I had a great career. My health, despite having an illness that is technically incompatible with what I was doing, I had 10 amazing seasons on this World Cup tour. Um, you know, let's, let's, let's take the, the foot off the gas pedal before uh, I'm forced to, you know, get out of the car. And since your retirement, you took up roles in media covering alpine skiing and eventually were hired by the IOC as an athlete relations manager. What learnings did you carry with yourself into the corporate world? That's a very good question. I've been asking myself that. I think you know, sports prepares you for a lot of things. And there's a lot of benefits to coming from a background like mine. 
Um, the one biggest struggle that I have and that I know many other athletes have is you're going from extreme dynamism, you know, like I, the only time I would be sitting down is when you're like resting or on the physio table to the expectation that you can spend eight, 10 hours a day in front of a computer. And that shift is happening so quickly. Um, and that was potentially like, while my, you know, my ideas, my perspective, my perseverance, my dedication to uh, being excellent at what I do, all of those were 100% compatible with um, the jobs that I took after. The one thing that kept missing is this, you know, the, the, the staticity of it was so unnatural to my body and my mind um, that I, I eventually needed to find a balance between you know, doing a job that I love and I, I still am in communication and, and media and stuff like that, but having the flexibility of, you know, doing it uh, a bit from my phone, a bit on the go, uh, making a bit more of my own hours um, than this office environment that you're kind of expected to switch on after never, never has spent more than an hour in an office. And you were in fact often considered uh, a prime example of a smooth transition from sports to corporate because you took up positions at the age of 24 and you started seeing a lot of success in the corporate world as well how did you navigate this transition especially considering that there is a very palpable pressure on women to choose between career and family and raising their child and sports and what could have been if you actually did decide to not retire from the sport and continue playing until 28, 29, 30? Well, I think there's a few elements to this. You know, going back when you asked me about how, how did I cope with my transition, while at the time not the ideal of what I had in mind, it also bought me time because at 24, I was kind of entering the, the corporate world at a very similar age as my peers who had just graduated from university. And I was lucky enough to be able to continue to study uh, while I competed. So I was a few exams away from getting my, my bachelor's degree. So I didn't feel like I was you know, necessarily needing to catch up as much as I would have if I had stopped uh, five years later. On the other hand, there's this kind of funny dynamic of coming from a level of high professionalism in something you're 24, you've been a professional athlete for 10 years or more. Um, you are one of the best at what you do. And now all of a sudden you need to reframe your mindset to being an intern, an assistant, a coordinator or whatever role they give you. And I think a lot of athletes tend to struggle with that because you're going from being the best to kind of being the lowest on the on the, in the pick in the pecking order and and I know that for me age here played a huge role because I at 24 you know I had no family I had no significant let's say financial obligations that needed to take care of so I could kind of just go with the go with it and say like oh this sounds like a fun project I'll do it let's see where this takes us but if I would have been slightly older I probably would have had to be more picky I would have kind of wanted to get more prominent roles sooner, but I'm not sure I would have been ready for them because I kind of had an experience that was very different. And, and here is where, you know, the point on motherhood comes that at 24, 
I did internships. I did uh, lower level. I, I worked with the ski federation. I traveled the world for six, seven months a year, uh, not kind of burdened is not right word, but not dependent on, you know, a family that was waiting for me or so on. And then after a couple of years, I realized, okay, if I want a family, if I want a normal life, this is not something I can continue to do. I need to kind of reframe how I work. And I think for a lot of female athletes, it's hard because as, as a male athlete, you go field of play, corporate world. Um, yes, you might be starting a bit later. You can take a few lower entry roles and then you move on. But for women, there's this gap that if you are someone who wants a family, it's like, do I do that right after my career? And then that pushes back my corporate entry even further Do I pursue my education first. Or do I do a few years of corporate and then, you know, I accumulate enough to have my maternity benefits, but then I might be 35. So it's actually, I think, you know, it's, it's potentially also one of the reasons that, that pushes women out of sports at a slightly younger age, because we do have this thing that needs to fit somewhere in there if we want it. And this is really insightful to, to know. And I'm sure that this is a learning that a lot of athletes that you were licensing with through your position in IOC would also be hearing from you. But would you say there were a lot of athletes that echoed the same issue or problem that they were trying to battle with? I think, yes. Although to be fair, you know, I'm aware of it I, or I became aware of it once I left the sport. Once when I was in the sport, if I'm honest with myself, it wasn't even a consideration for me. It just so happened to play out that way that I was young enough. I had a, I had a, um, an education. I was lucky enough, you know, to then meet my husband relatively uh, soon after. So things fell into place and going back to this, like, yes, I am a success story in that sense, because I wish I could tell you I'm a success story because I planned it right. I'm a success story because in these circumstances, I was lucky enough for the pieces of the puzzle to put themselves together in the right order. But I do know that a lot of athletes are like me and they, you don't think about it because who knows if, if asthma didn't kick me out of my sport at 24, I'm pretty sure I would have kept going. How would have this transition look different if I would have been 28 or 32 or uh, whichever you know other other number I don't have an answer so it's easy for me to now look back and say like oh you know this worked out all right and that's what I try to encourage athletes uh, through some of the work that I do now it's like I understand that this is not a priority for you and I understand that you're not gonna spend so much time detailing what the next 10 15 20 years of your life are gonna look like but consider what are the priorities that you will have once your sport is not your only priority and then make even tiny movements and tiny steps to make sure that the day that career is over you're not completely lost and you have no idea you know am I going family am I going corporate am I going education or because a lot of that's exactly where athletes start to struggle they find themselves at the crossroad with no idea of even the general direction where they want to go and to just finish that, that's where we see a lot of athletes taking some time off and coming back to the sport. Why? Because that's the safe place because options A, B, C, and D are scary. And I don't really know which one to prioritize. 
So I'm going to run back to my sport because there, at least I know what I'm doing. Yeah. Which is why we see so many athletes come out of retirement or even, you know, take up coaching positions just to prolong their association with the sport. A hundred percent. And I agree. And it's, it's very, and not to say that this is bad, but I think, you know, you leave a sport for a reason because you think that there's something out there that you're going to be able to, it's going to be fulfilling enough to uh, allow you to leave that sport in peace. But if you have no plan in how you're leaving the sport, it just so happens that the thing that you were kind of sick and tired of is actually your safest option. Yeah. And now having been retired for seven to eight years, what would you say holds in the future for Anna? It's interesting. Um, I think, you know, I think I'm in a good place. I'm in a very normal place now. I'm, um, um, you know, I'm, I'm primarily currently, I'm primarily a mother. My, my daughter is about to turn two. Um, I have a second one on the way uh, in January. So, uh, you know, my, my current primary focus is uh, how to cope with uh, two, two uh, young children and, and to be fair, how to make them uh, productive and uh, good people in, in the future. Um, and then kind of on a, on a more professional level, I think, you know, my, my passion for sports, my passion for communication and telling sports stories is something that I want to, I want to keep working on. But I also realized that, um, you know, I've worked since I was 15. I have always been independent. I have always been chasing the next thing. And I, I am really enjoying the stage of life where, you know, I'm taking pleasure in the small moments. There's no big milestone that I can control. I can't, you know, I couldn't teach my daughter to walk. I could just sit in the corner and encourage her to do so. And there's been something kind of refreshing about taking that approach of like stepping back and, and, and seeing how things evolve. And um, I still do need to get my kind of my adrenaline fix and I, I still ski for fun. And I, I love to be involved, uh, you know, with the World Cup races in Zagreb and, and, and so on. And I, I think I'll never lose that competitive edge and competitive spirit. But I think, you know, I spent the first 20 years of my life chasing this sporting dreams. Um, I'm very happy to spend now 10, 15, uh, 20, or, you know, my goal is until my youngest is at least uh, 18, um, focusing on, on the family and, and trying to create something solid uh, there. And then hopefully, you know, the, the second, second wave of uh, Anna chasing something big again is, is going to start. But at the moment, I mean, I'm in no rush, to be fair. Okay. Well, thank you so much for taking out the time today and sharing your story with us. We really appreciate it. And I think it is a, it is a great learning for us to understand what it takes to have a career that of so much consistency and longevity and how important it is to also plan for your career after sports. No, absolutely. You know, I, I, if I were to look back, um, the one thing that I think strikes me in this this whole story is that uh, you can never dream too big, but you can't succeed if you're only dreaming. The only way to succeed is to have a dream, but then be enthusiastic and persistent enough to do all the hard work to make it happen. Because otherwise, it's just going to stay as this dream and all you're going to face is disappointment. Yeah, I think you're spot on. And that's the reason why 
I started this podcast is to obviously shed light on the hard work that it takes to reach the elite level and not just call it talent or gift. So thank you once again for taking on the time today and sharing your story with us. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Likewise. It was a wonderful experience chatting with Anna and being able to uncover some of the factors behind her long and successful career that got her competing at not one, not two, but three Olympics. I am sure aspiring athletes in our listener group would also appreciate the insights shared by Anna on how to get into that autopilot state during competitions and letting your body do what it does best. That's it for this episode folks. Thank you for tuning into the Gifted podcast. I have been your host Neeraj Mulani. A gentle reminder, you can find us as The Gifted on your favorite podcast platforms including Apple, Spotify and Google. Keep following us on Instagram, Facebook and YouTube as The Gifted Podcast and on Twitter as The Gifted Pod so you don't miss out on any upcoming episodes. Thank you once again for listening. and i'll see you next week with another special episode until then stay well and keep your masks on